This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. With me today is Sarah Hines. Sarah is an assistant professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. She's here to talk with me today about her book, Water for All, Community, Property, and Revolution in Modern Bolivia, out this year from the University of California Press. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Elena. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book specifically? Yes, absolutely. Um, I first became interested in the topic of Latin American social movements and struggles around water when I was a college student and activist in New York City in the late 90s and early 2000s. This was during the time of the global justice movement when social movements around the world were challenging inequality and the policies of powerful financial institutions like the World Bank. Um, and as I got involved in activism, first as a college student and then as a high school teacher, I began to learn about social movements in Latin America, like the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico, and movements against water privatization in Bolivia that were having a lot of success. And at the time, I was interested um, and involved in social movements in the U.S. that seemed to be losing. The global justice movement tanked after 9-11. The movements against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, didn't prevent those wars from happening. The fight against gay marriage at the time uh, seemed like an uphill battle, and I was also invo- involved in a reform movement in the New York City Teachers Union um, that was having very little success. So I wanted to understand what made social movements effective and why Latin American social movements were so much, seemed to be so much more successful than those in the United States at the time. So I started studying Spanish uh, while I was still a college student. I traveled to Chiapas with the university delegation to do solidarity work. And I wrote my senior thesis on labor organizing during the Bracero program. Uh, the Bracero program was a contract labor program that started during World War II that brought Mexican uh, men to, to work in U.S. agriculture. At the time, I was writing and researching the thesis in 2001 and 2002. The Mexican and U.S. governments were engaged in negotiations about reviving this kind of a program. And so I got interested in looking at uh, the relationship between Mexican braceros, as they were called, and uh, U.S. uh, domestic uh, agricultural workers and the relationships between them, um, and found that they ended up um, often uh, bridging uh, the divides that were constructed between them by growers and state bureaucrats. 
Um, so after college, I taught social studies um, at a high school in the Bronx in New York. I continued my activist work and I kept paying attention to Latin America. Um, and this was the early 2000s. Um, so when Bolivians overthrew their president in, in 2003 in protests against gas exports, I became very curious to learn more. Um, and I'd already become interested in Bolivia at the time of the 2000 water war in Cochabamba when a broad social movement overturned water privatization there. So in the summer of 2004, I traveled to Bolivia to study Spanish and talk with activists there uh, while I was still a high school teacher. Um, and at the time of all the social movements in the world that were fighting water, uh, that were fighting neoliberal policies like water privatization, Bolivia's were among the, the most successful. And that success began with the fight over water privatization in Cochabamba in the year 2000. Um, so after teaching high school for four years, I spent a year in Bolivia with a Fulbright grant carrying out an oral history project on social movements in Cochabamba in the early 2000s, and particularly focusing on the role of state tin miners who had been fired in the 1980s with uh, policies um, that came with neoliberal economic reform practices. Um, so when I began a PhD program in history at the University of California, Berkeley in 2007, I planned to study some aspect of Cochabamba of Bolivia's uh, labor and social movement history. And while I thought I might write a history of mine workers um, or the capital city La Paz during the 1952 Bolivian Revolution, my attention kept getting pulled back to water. And the more I looked at uh, historical documents and talked with people, the more I realized that social struggle over water did not begin with the privatization effort in the late 1990s, but rather that it had a long history that helped to explain, or that I thought probably helped to explain, why the movement against water privatization had been so powerful and successful in the year 2000. So I ultimately decided to write my dissertation on the history of social struggle over water property and access in Bolivia with a focus on the Cochabamba region. And that dissertation, which I finished in 2015, became the basis for my book, Water for All. In, in this book, you argue that Cochabamba is, is what you call a popular hydraulic society where water users... Um, have successfully exerted, in your words, a common claim to collective control over water resources. Can you unpack what this means for listeners and and think about what it tells us about the social and political and economic landscape of the region, or waterscape, as it were? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, historical studies of hydraulic engineering projects have tended to take a top-down approach. Um, they often portray water users and environments as either victims um, or passive beneficiaries of powerful states or private capital. And they often uh, focus uh, exclusively on state and professional engineers and water managers and don't consider uh, the expertise and knowledge of uh, ordinary water users. Um, and this perspective is best represented by Carl Wittfogel and Donald Worster, who both studied irrigation and, and politics in arid environments. Wittfogel studied irrigation systems in China. Donald Worster studied the development of water infrastructure and, and power dynamics in the U.S. West. Um, and Wittfogel in the 1950s argued that building large-scale irrigation systems required centralized state administration to build and maintain those systems and therefore inevitably led to despotic political regimes um, in arid environments. And Donald Worcester applied this thesis to the U.S. West, where he found that powerful state institutions and wealthy elites dominated and exploited the land and other people by controlling water sources. Um, and, and while these kinds of outcomes are possible and have no doubt occurred, uh, whether in China or the U.S. West or other places, um, what I take issue with in this perspective is the deterministic idea that the development of irrigation systems in arid environments inevitably produces despotism. I mean, I'm not the first to, um, to make this 
point by any stretch. Um, and what I argue in, in Cochabamba is that, um, in contrast, providing water in a semi-arid environment didn't lead to or uh, require authoritarianism. But rather in Cochabamba, ordinary water users won access to a range of water sources and systems in various ways uh, through their labor, through their knowledge, and through, through their social struggle. Um, so that rather than falling victim to state builders and experts, Cochabambinos built what I call, a pop, as, you, as you said, a popular hydraulic society in the 20th century. And I think it'll become more clear what that means as we get into um, the the history itself. Uh, but just to give a brief overview, the book begins in the 1870s when a small group of landowners did control the bulk of the region's water sources, uh, which included especially mountain lakes and mountainside springs and seasonal rivers that flowed from those lakes. And the rest of the book traces the efforts of a broad array of actors from, from estate workers on haciendas, large estates, to independent peasants called piqueros, to city residents um, in neighborhoods on the urban periphery, uh, to s- residents of the city center, um, and also include state engineers, um, and their efforts to democratize water access, um, access to drinking water and irrigation water in particular. And it shows that by the time of the 2000 water war, Cochambinos had significantly democratized water access and established a significant measure of popular control over water sources and infrastructure, and even over hydraulic planning and policy. Um, And this is not to romanticize um, the situation or say that there weren't also inequalities, but that there was a significant democratization of water access um, and um, participation in planning and policy over those uh, 100 or more years. Um, And related to this, um, many scholars have found that high modernist water infrastructure projects like dams have ignored local people their history, their knowledge, and local ecology. And this is no doubt true in in many cases. Think dam projects that displace large numbers numbers of people in India or Egypt or the U.S.'s Tennessee Valley, um, for instance. Uh, But in Cochabamba, in contrast, I found that water users have been able to draw on their own history and knowledge and desires to craft alternative visions of modernity. So rather than placing Cochabamba's water escape, um, both its public water system and its more autonomous water systems outside of modernity, um, I I, uh, argue that they're uh, very much part of uh, modernity, but um, a more democratic bottom-up version. I mean, I think that many people who are listening, or at least those of us who were searching as you were for um, examples of sort of successful social movements around the turn of the 21st century, um, are going to have remembered the the Cochabamba water wars or Bolivia and the wars the wars over water and gas as these as these moments of sort of shocking transformation or or unrest against um, a globalization. But what you, what your book does is really show how this is a much much longer conflict, and you argue that there's the if we're going to look farther back, these watershed moments, as as you say. Um, one of them is going to be the revolution of 1952. Um, I mean, first, it's important to say that the 2000 water war in Cochabamba was indeed a huge turning point in Bolivian and even global politics. In Bolivia, it opened a five-year period of mass mobilization that brought down two presidents, discredited neoliberal economic policies, and led in 2005 to the election of the country's first indigenous president, Evo Morales. Um, and at the time, in those years, Cochabamba water protesters called for a constituent assembly that would refound the nation on the basis of democratic access to and control over natural resources like water um, and others. Um, and Morales, uh, in his um, 
in his campaign and in his inauguration speeches, promised to hold such an assembly and made good on that promise um, as president. So in many ways, all of that flowed from, um, no pun intended, uh, this initial uh, successful struggle against water privatization in 2000 after uh, many years of um, other privatizations that had um, not been um, halted by social protest. So in Cochabamba, the water war returned water provision to the municipal water utility. It returned it to peri-urban neighborhoods, and it returned water provision to rural irrigation systems um, who had managed it before privatization. And there are many wonderful studies of the water war itself, its aftermath in the period uh, in the late 80s and, and 90s, where neoliberal approaches took hold in Bolivia. But this deeper history um, of social struggle over water um, is really important to understand the struggle itself and the what produced um, the water systems um, and rights regimes that uh, privatization arrived to transform. Um, and this history is bound up with larger historical processes like the dispossession and dismantling of indigenous communities, the 1952 revolution, as you say, um, and the dictatorships of the 60s and 70s. So digging back into historical records and newspapers and doing interviews with water users in different parts of the region um, showed me that social struggle over water access in Cochabamba and in Bolivia more generally had this longer and more and quite dramatic history. Um, and it showed, and what I argue in the book, is that Cochabambinos succeeded in overturning water privatization in the 2000 water war because they were defending something that they had already won over decades of organizing, and that being popular control over water sources and provision. Um, and so whereas water was controlled by a small number of water owners in the late 19th century, by the late 20th century, a wide array of groups owned and controlled it um, and its provision um, and water policy. So by 1999, water users in the valley had come to consider themselves the owners of the region's water sources um, and systems. And interestingly, many of the valley's autonomous water systems, uh, both in the agricultural areas and in the outskirts of the city, um, are relatively recent inventions. Um, so whereas we might assume that water, the communitarian water systems are artifacts of some ancient past, um, in Cochabamba, many are new. And of course, all water systems, um, like all relationships um, between people and their environments, are evolving uh, creations. Um, some irrigation systems do have their roots in pre-colonial times, uh, but even those have changed quite significantly over time. Let's go back to um, where your book starts, which is in the in the 1870s, um, and, and this El Nino related drought. And, and we can talk about kind of how water figured into Hacienda expansion and dispossession and, and land tenure changes that were happening then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, water dispossession, um, absolutely functioned as a tool first of colonial violence and then later post colonial violence. Um, in the late 19th century, Owners of large landed estates called haciendas, who are mostly de- who are descendants um, of Spanish uh, conquistadors, gained control over almost all of the region's water sources. Um, and this process began had begun in the colonial period when Spanish settlers and their descendants appropriated land, water sources, and irrigation infrastructure from indigenous populations through a combination of purchases, theft, and royal grants. Um, but despite that dispossession, indigenous communities held on to much of their land and water sources into the independence period. Uh, but in the, late 19, in the late 1870s, at the beginning of the liberal period, the national government took advantage of a severe drought and the, fam- and the famine, disease, and death it produced to break up indigenous communities' collective land holdings. And since water rights are tied to land, uh, this process also 
led to the privatization of collective water rights. Um, so the state uh, came along and titled um, individual families, land holdings, and um, the associated uh, water rights, but then sold off the so-called excess land and excess water rights to large landowners. So this large landowner. So this involved. Um, this was a huge dispossession of indigenous communities, and also led to their um, demise because now um, there was uh, no longer collective land and, and water holding. And at the same time, the national government implemented a riparian system of water rights, which meant that water sources that were located within a particular private property or flowed through it belonged to the landowner. So the combined effects of these processes meant that a small group of landowners monopolized the region's most important water water sources by the end of the 1800s, even more than they had during the colonial period. So let's let's go back and talk about... um your your conversation about high and low forms of modernist development, because one of the things that starts happening in, in Bolivia in the turn of the 20th century is this idea of the government starting to think, well, we need to change some things. We need to democratize some things about, about the state. Um, and, and one of the things that your book argues is that there was a water reform that preceded the land reform that was part of early populist projects um, in the aftermath of the Chaco War, for example. And so what did the state try to do in the 1930s and and what actually happened to transform water use? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really important question. After the Chaco War, the traditional um, mining, land-owning political class was completely discredited because of the loss of Bolivia to uh, Paraguay in the Chaco War and the huge loss of life in in that war. Um, And in the wake of the war, uh, reformist governments called military socialist governments uh, of mid-ranking military officers came to power um, and uh, these military socialist governments of David Toro and Herman Bush um, wanted to develop the national economy by st- at least starting with um, increasing agricultural production. Um, trying to start with something that was Bolivia's strength um, in order to ultimately move toward other forms of economic development. Um, but they weren't willing to redistribute land to accomplish, while they weren't re- willing to redistribute land to accomplish that, um, they did try to make water more accessible to small farmers and um, large estate owners through large-scale hydraulic development projects, um, and also through some very limited purchases of water sources from estate owners. And this effort began in Cochabamba, um, the country's largest agricultural region. So the idea was that with greater water access, both large estates and small farmers could increase agricultural production because they could uh, plant twice a year um, and have uh, better uh, production. Um, So to make water more accessible to farmers, the military socialists first nationalized a range of water sources. Um, In the new 1938 constitution, um, the constitution federalized rivers, um, marshes and medicinal waters, as well as, uh, in the constitution's words, all of the physical forces available uh, are able to be used for economic purposes. Mm -hmm. Then in 1939, uh, President Bush invited Mexican state engineers to design and build a large irrigation dam in in Cochabamba called the uh, Angostura Project. Um, And the dam itself ended up being uh, named the Presa Mexico um, after uh, the Mexican engineers and the Mexican state um, who had designed and and funded it. Um, So Bush and his his ministers were interested in doing something like what Cardenas, uh, the president of, of Mexico at the time in the 1930s, had done there. 
Um, during his presidency, uh, the Mexican state redistributed 45 million acres of land, and the National Irrigation Commission there built a series of dams to increase the productivity of redistributed agricultural land. Um, and so Bush invited Mexican state engineers to come and design and build the Angostura Dam in Cochabamba, um, which was to be the centerpiece of a new state-built and state-managed uh, national irrigation system. And they were drawn to this Cardenista model of state-led reform aimed at economic diversification, uh, greater agricultural productivity, and uplift of the rural poor. Um, but they wanted those benefits without, if there's some quote, something along the lines of 10 years of Pancho Villa. They wanted, that, <laughs> they wanted all of that without the 10 years of violence of the Mexican They didn't want to reproduce revolution. that part of the Mexican right. revolution. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the end, they ended up getting both, but they didn't know that. Um, so the other side of this was providing greater water supply to the growing city of Cochabamba, the department's capital, where residents were pr protesting uh, water scarcity and unequal access um, as the pop urban population was growing, um, as people were migrating to the city um, after the Chaco War. Um, so to end um, the state of affairs, uh, the government or tried to try to um, increase water access in the cap in the state capital. Um, the state government expropriated water sources from three seasonal rivers that supplied a handful of large estates um, and somewhere in the order of 800 small farmers. Um, and this is one of my favorite sources that I found in the course of my research. Um, thankfully, it was preserved in the state archive, the record of this, um, of this project and attempted expropriation. Um, so in the, the record, um, the, the landowners write against the proposal um, saying that this is going to hurt the, um, the uh, hurt food production in the countryside. Uh, but small farmers, um, independent landowners known as piqueros, um, offered a particularly sharp critique um, of the expropriation on the basis of existing water inequality, explaining to the state government that they were forced to rent water from their wealthy asendado neighbors, who not only had far more land than they did, but also had water rights to spare. Um, and so there was a water market in the countryside that the state government was probably aware of, but they were on this basis, the piqueros um, opposed this expropriation. Um, and they proposed instead that the state of government expropriate the, the Chapicirca lakes, um, which belonged to the heirs of Daniel Salamanca, who had, was the president <laughs> who had, by now deceased uh, by 1940, who had led Bolivia to war with, Chile, uh, with, uh, with Paraguay in, in the Chaco in the early uh, 1930s. And the incredible thing about this is that the prefecture complied uh, with the Piqueros um, request. So That's such a great example of, of popular knowledge and popular uh, projects sort of intervening. That's fabulous. Absolutely. And the pressure and, and influence that ordinary, supposedly powerless people can have at a time of social um, upheaval and unrest and political crisis. Um, but at this, while all of this was significant, these reforms in terms of these uh, large-scale hydraulic projects and this, um, while limited but also significant um, expropriation, um, all of this was aimed at avoiding redistribution of land and water through uh, and avoiding expropriations of land and, and water. Um, and the governments, uh, the, the national government and the state government, hoped that these kinds of dam projects um, could capture water that was not being used and channel it to farmers, both large and small. Uh, but in the end, this was not enough to quell the water demands of piqueros or city dwellers or um, ultimately uh, hacienda laborers um, known as colonos. Um, so despite these reforms, 
Cochabamba's uh, water monopoly mostly endured, and Hacendados retained ownership of most of the region's water sources in the 1940s. So this brings us up to the 52 revolution. um, And I really like the way your book sort of positions this moment as a hydraulic revolution, because so much of the way that scholars tend to talk about the Bolivian revolution, and with good reason, is, you know, land to those who work at uh, mines to the state and universal suffrage and these sorts of things. Um, But water is caught up in all of that. And I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is that these... um, these colonos have a memory of building the infrastructure, right? This, this, if this infrastructure is recent, then the people who have built the infrastructure um, mostly are still living there, and they are water users, and they are, um, and they are using this to sort of justify their claims uh, to create a political claim on the state. So, um, so how does how do let's let's look at the fifty two revolution and, and think about how this changes the way we think about agrarian reform processes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, For me, the chapter on the revolution is the most important chapter in the book uh, because it shows that water redistribution was a major demand of both city residents and rural farmers, especially the colonos, the estate workers, um, and that it was also a major accomplishment of the revolution. Um, So after the 52 revolution, um, rural estate workers' main demand, as you said, um, was famously land for those who work it. Um, in other words, um, they demanded expropriation and redistribution of land hoarded by estate owners that they had worked for a pittance for generations. Um, but focusing on water um, in these cases shows that colonos also demanded water for those who use it. Um, and their demands were based, as you say, not only on the need to irrigate the plots that they won through agrarian reform or that they were trying to win through agrarian reform, uh, but also on their historic labor. Um, and in these cases and in interviews I did with uh, with elders in the communities um, where these where the reforms happened, um, they pointed to the fact that their forebearers had built the dams and canals that stored and channeled water to the haciendas, and that their ancestors and that they themselves have been repairing and maintaining them ever since. And this is a matter of just a few generations. A lot of these dams had been built in the very fi- in the final years of the 19th century, the early years of the 20th century, and we're talking about 1953. So this is two or at most three generations um, previous um, that colonos had built these dams. And then every year they were going up to um, the dams and the canals to repair them um, and maintain them. Um, so the chapter draws on interviews um, with elders from these communities and transcripts of agrarian reform cases to show that agrarian reform involved not only land redistribution, but also redistribution of irrigation water sources. And as a result, unions formed by former colonos came to control some of the region's most important lakes, seasonal rivers, and springs. And I came to look into this because I didn't understand at first why now, well, the now was then 2011, more or less, uh, why the municipal water company was negotiating with um, communities of irrigators or or ex-colonial unions over uh, very important, the largest lakes in in the mountains um, outside of the city. Um, And at some point, I don't really remember quite how, I got um, a transcript of one of these cases as part of the research I was doing on the recent past and present. Um, And so that took me to the Agrarian Reform, um, the Institute of the Agrarian Reform um, Archive, where I found um, these cases and found a wealth of information about the redistribution of these um, water sources. Also, it's important to note that in the revolutionary period, city dwellers were mobilizing for greater water access as well. 
Um, and one of my favorite examples, a, a brigade of 200 workers climbed the mountainside um, to protest delays in a, in a project that was meant to bring more water to the city. And they took the project over from municipal workers, working 12 hours a day for two days, dynamiting open canals to connect two additional lakes to the city's water system. Um, so <laughs> that's, you know, the sort of popular labor and hydraulic expertise um, that um, you find in in this, um, in this history. Um, so paying attention to water shows that agrarian reform revolutionized the nation's water tenure regime, uh, dispossessing asentados of water sources that they had until then legally owned and, and instead delivering them to former estate workers. Um, but these colonos, um, the estate workers, were much more successful than independent peasants, the piqueros, um, or city dwellers in gaining increased water, which meant that the MNR's promise, the party that led the revolution, the uh, movement of the National Revolution, um, its promise to provide water for all was only, remained only partially fulfilled by the end of the revolutionary period in the early 1960s. What happens after the MNR government falls to military dictatorship? So in 1964, you have the MNR overthrown by General Barrientos. And like many, like like some other uh, revolutionary era reforms, these governments don't immediately dismantle water rights, right? This is not an immediate move to privatization in 64. So what happens? Yeah, not at all. And unlike unlike in Guatemala or Chile, the dictatorships didn't um, overthrow or overturn the agrarian reform um, of the 1952 revolution. Um, they didn't uh, do a lot to continue it, but they didn't shut it down. Um, in many cases, continued after the, the 1964 uh, coup. Um, so during these dictatorships in the 60s and 70s, water users that had been left out of those revolutionary area era redistribution programs um, tried to make good on this revolutionary promise of water for all. Um, so in this period, it's important to note, um, Latin America went from a primary, a primarily rural region to a majority urban region. Um, and that was the case in Bolivia as well, um, such that many new urban neighborhoods in the outskirts of cities like Cochabamba were left out of municipal water systems and lacked other public services. And this, this had always been the case that there were areas left out of the municipal water systems, uh, but that, um, didn't, that situation became even more exaggerated as cities grew. Um, so one of the main changes in the, in the 60s and 70s was the arrival of powerful development banks to the region. Um, in Bolivia, the Inter-American Development Bank began to provide loans for water supply expansion projects, um, but those loans came with conditions. Um, one was that uh, new water supply come from deep wells in the countryside rather than lakes um, and rather than dam projects in the mountains. Um, and this was because um, the logic was there could be greater control over, over um, aquifer water that could be uh, transferred to the city um, in, in pipes rather than through open-air canals. Um, and another condition was that the municipality found a new water company um, that would raise rates to achieve what they called cost recovery. Um, so they wanted to end subsidies for um, urban water provision. Uh, water users in Cochabamba um, had other ideas. By, by this point, um, the main water users in the valley were ex-colonial communities, piqueros, um, peri-urban neighborhoods and city center residents um, who are customers of this now refounded municipal water company, uh, Semapa was its name and still is. Um, they all lacked sufficient water to meet their needs and, um, and fulfill their desires. And they all rallied, began to rally behind a dam project in the mountains um, called the Misikuni Project. Um, so in 1975, a caravan of a thousand residents traveled up the mountainside to the project site 
by the Missikuni River to demand that the government carry out feasibility studies. Um, so these kinds of protests and demands pushed the government, uh, starting under the dictator Hugo Banzer in the 70s, to fund uh, studies for the project and ultimately to start building the dam itself um, in the 1990s. And this is an example of the kind of uh, vernacular modernist project uh, push from below um, that I was talking about before, uh, rather than, um, than the impetus coming from above or from outside. Um, and during these years, municipal customers successfully fought rate hikes through payment strikes and other means. Um, and in the countryside, when Semapa, the water company, tried to drill deep wells that would interfere with shallow irrigation wells, irrigators successfully organized to stop them, winning concessions of different kinds, um, including wells uh, uh, for themselves. Um, at, during these years, growing peri-urban communities built their own water systems um, as the municipal water system continued to leave them outside its network. They often purchased water sources from former estate owners and agrarian reform beneficiaries, and they built infrastructure with their own funds and labor. Um, and very importantly, the new, this new water company, Semapa, grew uh, in terms of its um, reach by making agreements with these neighborhoods, incorporating them into the municipal water network in exchange for their water sources and infrastructure. So Semapa was very much built by uh, urban neighborhoods, uh, members, residents of urban neighborhoods themselves. Um, and these fights over rates in the city center and over wells in the countryside continued into the neoliberal period of the late 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and often these fights over water access pitted urban and rural customers against each other, um, and they also pitted Semapa customers against um, the uh, company Semapa as the Inter-American Development Bank urged Semapa to raise rates. Um, so interestingly, many of these groups um, of water users had opposed Semapa's policies in the decades before privatization. So this is a much longer struggle against uh, for control, actually, rather than just against a certain kind of development. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when Bolivia returns to a kind of civilian democracy, this is actually the moment in which the government is able to dismantle a lot of the, a lot of the infrastructure of the revolutionary state, right? So what, what happens um, in the 80s and in the 90s? And, and how did the privatization fight um, transform water use? Neoliberal water policy... Um aimed to privatize water municipality, water utilities, municipal water utilities, and that, as is well known. Um, but it was that was just one component of a much broader effort to dispossess the population of water sources and systems, as well as the social right to participate in water management and hydraulic engineering that they had won over the previous three decades since the 1952 revolution. Um, so the fight in, uh, 2000, in 1999 and 2000 over water privatization was the culmination of decades of social struggle over water access, over rate hikes, over deep well drilling, um, and other policies. And as the slogan, the water is ours of the water war suggests, during the water war, water users in Cochabamba were not only defending a state-owned municipal company, that company that they had actually been fighting <laughs> in various ways for the previous two or three decades. Um, they were also defending a wide range of water sources and systems that various communities of water users owned and controlled. Um, so to put your question a different way, I think the reason that the national government under a now elected President Banzer in the, in the late 1990s um, wanted to privatize water 
was because not only he, but all of the major political parties, including the MNR, had accepted the logic of neoliberalism. That state that public sector institutions were hopelessly and inevitably inefficient and corrupt, that water was a natural monopoly and therefore autonomous water systems were inefficient and backwards, that private foreign companies were, were in contrast, were efficient and effective, um, and that private companies, foreign consultants, and international development banks, rather than water users themselves, knew best about how to administer water. Um, but what they failed to consider was this long history of social struggle over water in Cochabamba. Um, and ultimately, privatization failed because of this history, because water users in Cochabamba had engineered the region's water sources and systems and had fought for decades to democratize, democratize access to them. Um, so water privatization raised rates astronomically after three decades of, of mostly successful efforts of Semapa customers to keep them low. Water privatization dispossessed the public of a municipal water company whose water sources and systems they had partially built and paid for over many decades. Water privatization dispossessed neighborhoods on the outskirts of the city of water sources and systems that they had entirely paid for and charged them to use them. Water privatization dispossessed small farmers, including ex-colonial agricultural communities of water sources and systems that they had built and paid for, um, built and maintained for generations. And in the case of colonos, had fought a revolution to win. And the water privatization scheme would have replaced the Missy project with another project against the wishes of the local population who had fought for this project for 30 years. Um, so the water privatization fight and the successful um, struggle against it, or the, the success in, in defeating water privatization, um, returned the state of affairs um, to what it had been before 1999, um, but in many ways re-empowered, um, gave Cochambinos a new sense of their own power that they had lost in a lot of ways over the past 15 years of democratic return, where um, a restored democracy was a much more impoverished democracy than the democracy they had fought for in the revolution and that they had fought for during two dec decades of dictatorship. Um, and so um, it was only really with the water war and the successful fight of, against privatization that Cochambinos and Bolivians who supported them um, found again a sense of their power from below to construct a democracy where they had a say in um, what uh, policies that affected their lives looked like. Thank you for that answer. That's that's really helpful. And um, so I guess my next question would be, um, it, since you said that it kind of returned, on the one hand, it returned things to the status quo, but on the other hand, it, it enabled kind of what came next, right? It, it enabled a new way of imagining uh, political participation. Um, so what is the status of, um, what is water access like in Cochabamba now and, and what has changed? Yeah, it's such an important question um, because when Aguas Tutunari, the company that was uh, handed over, that was handed the um, provision of water in Cochabamba left 22 years ago, um, there were still real problems um, to solve that privatization didn't. Um, and one was that um, there's so many people who are left out of the municipal water network who pay sometimes as much as 20 times the amount that that municipal customers uh, pay for water to buying it from um, private water pri uh, providers who fill up their tanks in the water rich northern neighborhoods of the city and sell it dear in the dry southern neighborhoods. Um, so everyone recognized that there were still real problems to solve. Um, Semapa's new um, 
governance structure included community representatives. And at first there were elected community representatives in Semapa, but that um, sort of fell off after a few years um, as social movements demobilized a bit. Um, and then after the election of the Morales government, um, there began to be a tension between um, the Morales government's des- desire to centralize control over water provision um, and autonomous water users' um, efforts and desires to maintain that kind of local control over uh, water sources and systems. Um, so, for instance, in the neighboring uh, municipality of Sacaba, right next door to Cochabamba, um, um, the MAS led, uh, Abel Morales' party, the MAS, the, the MAS led public water company tried to absorb water cooperatives into the municipal water system um, and use their water sources and infrastructure for the broader region. Um, but cooperative members argue that they had purchased these water sources and built this infrastructure with their own labor and funds, um, so they didn't um, have any reason to um, turn it over to the municipality or share um, those uh, sources with um, their newly arrived neighbors. Um, so these kinds of tensions between uh, water users who possess either historic rights um, or who possess uh, water infrastructure and, and sources, um, there have been tensions between them and those who don't have those kind of rights. Um, I'm actually in Cochabamba right now. Um, I've been here for about two months. And when I arrived, I was curious to find out um, whether water from the Misikuni Reservoir that has since been completed since my la- the last time I was here a few years ago, um, whether it had arrived to the Zona Sud, um, the southern zone of the city um, that uh, was most um, uh, waiting for it in, in, the, in the city. Um, and so I, I found talking to uh, different folks at the the Empresa Misikuni um, and at Semapa and in neighborhoods um, that the the Misikuni company is preparing to deliver water to neighborhoods in the Zona Sud um, and the municipal water company Semapa will administer water in most um, Zona Sud neighborhoods. Um, So there's going to be sort of a a combination of the municipal water company uh, delivering Misikuni water to most of the Zona Sud neighborhoods, and then other neighborhoods that don't want anything to do with Semapa receiving uh, water directly from um, the Misikuni company um, because of these sort of historic, uh, this historic distrust on the part of some of the Zona Sud neighborhoods, um, their distrust of the water company um, Semapa. One of the biggest issues now is that um, is the question of distribution. Um, Simapa has built eight new distribution networks, uh, but is still looking for financing to build five more. So while water is set to arrive in some neighborhoods of the Zona Sud um, this uh, in the next few months, the network doesn't reach the hardest to reach or the furthest um, southern neighborhoods. Um, and the region's other municipalities are even less prepared to distribute water from Misikuni. Um, another side of this is that irrigators in the countryside complain that Misikuni water is going to the city for human consumption and not to their fields, even though this was always um, historically called the Proyecto Multiple Misikuni, that this was supposed to be a multiple um, project in the sense of it was supposed to provide water for not only drinking water, but also hydroelectricity and irrigation. Um, and a contact of mine at the Impresa Misikuni has said that um, these rural communities are going to have to wait until the second or the third phase of the project um, when two additional dams are built um, before they're going to 
receive water. And then finally, giving a sense of how <clears throat> this history continues to play out, um, Semapa is on the verge of implementing a new rate structure that threatens to increase water rates for half of its customers. So it's not only private companies that try to increase rates, uh, but also the municipal company, despite this long history of its users um, fighting for subsidized water, is, um, is still trying to raise rates um, now 50 years after um, the first rate hike um, fights in the 1970s. So in a lot of ways, this history continues to play out. Um, but there, at, this, at the same time, um, there's a real sense that equity matters, um, that historic rights matter, and um, that some sort of mechanisms for including um, the perspectives and demands of water using constituencies um, matter in the formulation of, of public policy. And there, there are ways that that's falling short, um, but other ways that um, the state government and um, the municipal water company are in- incorporating um, those demands and participation in their um, actions. So the struggles, the struggles continue, but there's, there's still oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> always. <laughs> All right. So my next question is, in Bolivia, uh, you talk about insurgent citizens, um, you know, popular vernacular modernists engaging in environmental governance um, and claiming their own expertise and a, and more than anything, a profound tradition of popular demands over natural resources. So my question is, is Bolivia unique in this respect or can this history of Cochabamba's popular hydraulic society help us understand the way water politics works and social struggle work in other places as well. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I get nervous about making claims about how representative or unique Cochabamba's history is, as I, it requires more knowledge of other places, history than I feel I have. Um, but I think I can say that water monopoly and water scarcity and protests over water access have been particularly intense in Bolivia and within Bolivia, particularly intense in Cochabamba, uh, probably more than in most places in the region Um, or in the world. Um, But that said, there are plenty of examples of um, social struggle over water access in the recent past and in deeper history um, in other parts of the world um, as well. And for me, what Cochabamba's history teaches us is that history matters and that distribution matters. Um, Distribution of water sources themselves, first and foremost, but also the distribution of power over water infrastructure, over hydraulic engineering, and over water policy. Um, So just like other features of the environment, water sources and systems have histories that are bound up with people's labor and power struggles, and how water flows through a landscape and who has access to it are the result of historical processes shaped by power relations, inequalities, and social mobilization. Um, And and also for me, it suggests, um, this history suggests that water rights need to be flexible and continuously reallocated through democratic and inclusive processes, especially in urbanizing areas when needs are changing um, in ways that don't necessarily match up with existing rights regimes. Um, And so in the face of these kinds of difficult questions and issues, Cochabamba Water Activists have proposed founding a new uh, coordinating body like the one that organized the protests in 2000 that could make these sort of tough decisions, trying to respect both historic water rights and present day needs Um, This kind of a body would be made up of representatives of different constituencies of water users, um, ex-colonial agricultural unions, irrigators unions, peri-urban neighborhoods, uh, city center residents, uh, the 
water company Simapa state representatives. Um, and such a body could also decide what role the state would play in this process. Um, so ultimately, equitable distribution requires acting according. But I, I guess I just say, so let me start over to say that um, sort of stepping back from all of this, I think equitable redistribution or distribution requires acting according to a radical politics of solidarity, um, where some with excess rights and maybe perhaps excess power cede their rights, those their historic water rights, but also perhaps some of their social power to those um, without water access and without right, water rights according to need. Um, so the, this history is very important. Uh, who has access to what water and how they've won it through social struggle, um, but this might not all not take into account uh, the needs of those um, in the present. That makes a lot of sense, and um, I think many many people in a lot of places can can relate to the challenges of um, scarce water supplies and changing water use being something that that needs to be renegotiated. Constantly and also equitably. Absolutely, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. that that is a pretty profound lesson in in democratic water governance. Well, so my final question is just, what's next for you now that this fabulous book has come out? What are you interest? Where are you interested in going next? Yeah, um, I'm ex- I'm starting a new project on the social, political, cultural, and environmental history of glaciers in Bolivia, uh, focusing on the Cordillera Real outside of La Paz. Um, and I'm interested in, in looking at this history um, because, of course, we're living at a time when climate change is causing cl- glaciers to retreat. Um, but yet we don't know a lot about how different groups have interacted with glaciers over the long term um, or over the impacts of climate um, on um, their environments and their lives over the long term. And I'm particularly interested in looking at the relationship of rural Amara communities uh, with glaciers who re- who revere them as what they call the mother, mother of the waters, um, the source of all um, the waters of the region. And speaking, as we were earlier, of water dispossession as colonial and post-colonial violence, um, in the Altiplano, unequal power relations have shaped by anti-Indigenous racism have led to unequal access to these sources and control over these sources, um, glacier-fed water sources and systems, Um, as state institutions have channeled more and more water from the mountains to the capital city of La Paz. Um, But like in Cochabamba, um, I expect to find that Aymara communities have not only been victims of these kinds of policies and and dispossession, but have also uh, very much been protagonists in the building and modification of water systems. Um, And they've maintained their relationships um, with glaciers based on reciprocity and reverence um, as as glaciers have retreated, uh, maintaining these relationships with the glaciers that remain. That's such an important story. I'm very excited to hear that you're you're taking that on. Um, Yeah, I can't wait to see what you come up with. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. And I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, talk to us about your book. Thanks so much for inviting me.